Greetings from Michigan, and welcome to another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Weber. I've got several things for you in this new edition of the podcast. I'm going to talk about getting back in shape and some habits that hopefully you have uh, maintained. If not, if you've slipped off, uh, take a listen and try to redevelop your habits so that you're in good shape when you're finally able to get back on the baseball field. Talking about game management, we've mentioned this topic before, but you know, managing a game is the thing that separates umpires from other umpires and allows you to move along in your career and um, get other opportunities. So we'll touch on that topic again in a slightly different way. Um, as always, I've got an umpire spotlight. This week is current Major League umpire Jerry Davis, and I'm going to do a little history lesson. I, you know, I'm a history teacher. Uh, high school history teacher here, and um, baseball history is very fascinating, and I'm going to talk for a little bit about dead ball era umpires and their contributions to the umpiring profession and the things that we do today. Um, It is um, something that um, they don't really get the credit for in some of the conditions that they had to work in and kind of establishing modern umpiring. Hopefully you guys have been safe and healthy and um, see some states around the country are starting to open up. Uh, Michigan, hopefully here, will open up a little more by the beginning of June. Still hoping that I can get on the baseball field and and assign some games for others to get on the baseball field by that time. But we'll see. Um, We have our stay-at-home order until May 28th. Uh, So we'll see how that goes. Um, Feel free to Email me, spinalfusion06 at yahoo.com. Send me a message via Facebook at The Hammer Podcast or tweet me at uh, at Kevin R. Weber. Let me know how things are going. You can also leave me a voicemail, of course, too. I love the voicemails. I've only gotten a couple here and there, but uh, it's great when I get those. You just got to go to the Anchor Podcast um, site and you can leave a, a, a voicemail of 60 seconds or less. And uh, let me know how things have been going for you. Have you been able to get back on the field? Um, what what are the, you know, how's the pandemic working out in your particular state or country or wherever you might be? And um, when might you be able to get to umpiring? If you are umpiring, I'd like to know how it's going and, and how they're implementing things. Are they doing stuff like they are in South Korea with uh, the masks and things like that? We'll see. So anyway, I think I've got an interesting episode for you. So sit back and listen to another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. Let's talk for a few minutes about getting back in shape. Some of us have been sitting around a lot more than we normally do because, well, you know, stores are closed, places we go to are closed, you know, we can't officiate umpire uh, like we normally are doing at this time of the year. And so we've gotten maybe um, a little bit more lazy than than we normally are. So we hopefully are going to be back on the baseball fields soon and... Um, we got to make sure that we're back in shape and we're doing some good things uh, with our body and with our nutrition 
and uh, with our mental state, right? And all of this comes around um, and evolves around habits. The, the habits that you had developed before the pandemic um, and now that you've gotten away from. So you need to think about those things. You know, maybe you're a person that um, was a consistent uh, runner or maybe you consistently went to uh, your gym or you consistently worked out in some fashion. And for whatever reason, you're not doing that now. Uh, you need to, um, before we get out back on the baseball field, slowly start to get yourself uh, back in shape. It's kind of like a diet. You know, you can't just suddenly cut everything in the world out of your diet because, you know, hey, that stuff's all bad and, and change, you know, do like a whole 180. Um, if you haven't been doing the things that you should be doing, you can't just do a 180. You got to try to add a few things in and get that 1% better every day that uh, that you can, all right? And, um, and have a certain mindset out there too, all right? So habit building, this is like discipline building, right? Uh, same thing on the baseball field. You know, if you have certain habits that you do that are correct, uh, then you'll always do them. Even when you're tired, even when you're not necessarily, um, you know, thinking about it, you're going to do that. And we need to start doing these things as far as our um, stamina and our athletic ability and our nutrition, all right? So, um Eliminate um, some of your, you know, self-sabotaging thoughts that you might have. The I've got to do this and I've got to do that uh, kind of things that we think about or I don't feel like doing this. You know, try to uh, train your brain to think, you know, I get to do these things. I get to work out today. I get to uh, make sure I'm eating healthy. Um, I get to work on my flexibility. Um I get to make sure I get a good night's sleep, all those kind of things that you have, all right? So it's all about having a system to do it, all right? Um, there were probably some things that hopefully were working well for you beforehand, and your system has been kind of uh, out of whack lately. And so you've got to try to get that system back and uh, re-oil it and uh, make sure it's working properly so that... You can hit the ground running when it's time to get back on the baseball field, all right? And uh, the big thing is, you know, improving by 1% each day. If you've improved more than that, that's great. And celebrating those 1% victories um, and then continuing to get better. Um, and hopefully that carries over and you just see some big improvements over the next, um, you know, months um, or whatever we might have available here for the rest of the baseball season. So some things to think about. Well, hopefully, we're soon going to be back on the baseball field and calling balls and strikes and our safe outs and our fair fouls. And we're all looking forward to that to a point. One thing, though, that I think is in the back of our minds that we don't necessarily want to think about is that we're going to have to deal with the typical uh, irritating coaches or players or fans or other things that uh, happen throughout a a baseball game or any other sporting event that make it difficult to to umpire and to officiate. As we know, if it were that easy, then everybody would do it. But uh, it is a challenging thing, and 
and managing a game and managing people is one of the more challenging things that we have to do. In some ways, it's more challenging than the actual calls that we make, right? So you need to start thinking about um, those things and how you are going to maintain your poise and your dignity and uh, manage your baseball games, okay? And what you are willing to put up with. Now, you, you know these things before, but you need to think about them before you step back out on the baseball field from this time off that most of us have had. So go through those things in your mind. What do you accept? What do you not accept? Sometimes it matters what level you're working and the age of the participants. Um, obviously, certain coaches um, have certain leeways and certain levels and others don't. So um, make sure that you have those things in mind um, as you start working these games. Um, do you have certain techniques that you use that have worked? Um, sometimes humor can work. Sometimes ignoring situ you know, situations. I'm not saying you ignore it and not deal with it, but sometimes you don't need to, um, to acknowledge certain things that people are saying because then they know that, you know, they've got your ear and they're going to try to get at you a little bit. All right. It, when you do deal with situations, which in a, invariably we, we usually have to make sure that you are working on adopting a conversational tone right? Uh, try to address upset people or irritating people to us, you know, like they're a real person, not just like they're just this inanimate object coach or player or whoever they might be. So if you can adopt that conversational tone and deliver your responses in a soft, measured cadence, uh, you'll be much better off. Um, of course, you know, know when you've got to, um, you know, draw the line uh, for what is acceptable and what is not. And uh, make sure that, you know, you're, you're willing to, to do what you got to do to make sure you manage a, a baseball game. All right. Um, make sure that, you know, maybe you have to count. Maybe you have to make sure that, you know, you're keeping your poise and not flying off the handle. If you do end up having to eject, um, the best types of ejections, I mean, you, I'm not talking about like your ejection technique. I mean, there are some that are better than others. I'm talking about you do it in not a flashy way. You do it in a controlled, dignified way and you eject somebody and you get away from that person um, as soon as possible, um, get far away from them. Or even if you're not ejecting, and you have to um, end a conversation with a coach like, okay, we've talked about what we're talking about here. Um, I'm ending this conversation. Then you need to walk away from them and get away from them so that they cannot continue it. All right. But you need to do all these things in a measured, dignified kind of way. And these are some things that we need to start thinking about before we get back on the baseball field, hopefully sometime soon. I'd like to talk for a few minutes about dead ball era umpires and what they did for baseball. So you you might or might not uh, be familiar with the dead ball period. If you are not, that is from you know the beginnings of baseball in the later 1800s up through uh, 
usually they say 1919. So usually 1920 starts um, the modern live ball era, okay? And that kind of, um, well, that coincides with Babe Ruth. When Babe Ruth started to hit all his home runs, especially uh, 19, well, he hit a, a bunch of home runs in 1920, but he hit 59 home runs in 1921. And that is like the beginning of the live ball era and the end of the dead ball era. So we're talking like the, the 19 teens and before. Okay. So turn of the century up through that uh, about 20 year period. Um, really, um, 1901 is when we had both major leagues around. The National League was around first. That's whether the senior circuit and then the American League, the junior circuit, uh, started to really get going in 1901. And then we started seeing the World Series played and things like that. Okay. So um, very little has been written about dead ball era umpires um, who established the foundations of the modern umpiring profession. You know, things like the implementation of umpire signals, uh, the two umpire system, uh, more support from league authorities for umpires. But, you know, so yet yeah, this group of men who did this umpired during, you know, the dead ball era established the traditions, the rules, and the procedures by which fans and sports writers and managers and coaches and players and everybody. Uh, understands the game today. Some of these people we've talked about in umpire spotlights, um, but I think it's worth kind of looking at them as a whole. All right. So one of the first major developments uh, that they came up with was uh, when they figured out how to use signals, um, umpire signals, uh, during the dead ball era to um, formalize communication between fellow umpires and players and coaches and fans. So before the first public address system arrived at the Polo Grounds in 1929, umpires would announce lineups or changes in lineups for by using a megaphone. Can you imagine doing this now? So as for signals like safe, out, fair, foul, strike ball, and things like that, um, it's not too clear. A lot of people uh, think that Cy uh, Riggler is credited with raising his right arm to call a strike. We talked about him before. Um, doing that in 1905 um, in a minor league game. Um, when it came to the majors in 1906, he found hand signals uh, were already in place because uh, Bill Clem, who we've talked about before, had been using them, uh, using fair and foul signals in the minor leagues. Clem started this um, uh, in his interview, um, stated this in his interview that he had um, back in the day. That there is... Uh, but there's no independent, you know, confirmation that he's the one for sure. So it could be Cy Riggler, it could be Bill Clem, it could have been somebody else. We don't really know. But anyway, by 1906, many umpires, including Riggler, Clem, and others, were using signals, and the use of this communication was becoming more widespread, which is good, and we all use that today. By 1907, some publications began to push for more widespread adoption of umpire signals in the major leagues. Um, Sporting Life, uh, citing an article from the Chicago Tribune, said that uh, the Tribune's agitation for a, a system of umpire gestures to indicate decisions seems to be far-reaching uh, and very popular. All right, Because, you know, You've all been there where you're watching a game or you maybe have a partner that does this or whatever, and something happens, you know, there should be a call and people are waiting. You know, 
you don't know. As the guy said, is he out? Is it fair? Is it foul? Is it, is it a strike? Is it a ball? You know, you don't know what's going on. So we all kind of expect that. And um, before they had this implementation, that was still expected. Um, but, um, you know, it didn't always happen. Really, the big push was um, when we had the first uh, deaf players that were um, playing. And uh, there was one... Um, William Hoy, they called him Dummy Hoy. It's a little bit inappropriate now, but, you know, it was back in the day, so that that was acceptable. Anyway, Bill Clem uh, kind of talked about that, and they started using hand signals so that he would be able to um, know what the call was and also not be uh, tricked by players because he couldn't hear that it was a fair foul, strike, ball, whatever it might have been, all right? So... That definitely helped push things a little bit uh, forward. Um, Hoy ended up being a bit of a star player. He's a good player. You can look him up on Baseball Reference. And uh, the biggest thing with him, he was credited with initiating the practice of umpires raising the right hand on called strikes. Other important signals, out and safe. Um, Bill Clem takes credit for this. Uh, Again, we don't know for sure, but... He said that he invented the standard um, safe and out signal um, used by umpires. Um, the jerk of the thumb over the shoulder for out, which people don't really do now, but they, they used to do that, and he's one. that's how he called an out. And the palm down gesture for safe. And if you see old clips of baseball games, especially, let's say, from the 1930s and before, that's kind of the way they would do things. Well, even into the 40s and 50s, I guess. Um so he took credit for that, and obviously that is very expected. Now we have it more uniform the way you're supposed to do those signals. But um, back in the time, you're just supposed to give some kind of signal so that people kind of know what the heck is going on. So the next innovation of the dead ball era umpires was the use of multiple umpires. So during the first eight years of the dead ball period, so we're talking like turn of the century to like around 1910-ish, all right? 1908, 1909, 1910. Um, the owners at the time believe only one umpire was needed unless in a key game or in a pennant race or something like that, something was important. So in 1908, the three contenders in the National League, the Cubs, the Giants, and the Pirates, had two-man crews a little over 80% of the time. Now, if you know your baseball history, that was, well, for both leagues, American League and the National League, like one of the closest pennant races ever. It was crazy close, you know, like within a game and like a half game in both leagues, okay? Um, So in the American League in 1908, games between Cleveland and um, the White Sox all had two-man crews. And then in 1909, both leagues effectively had two-man crews, but the major leagues did not formally adopt the two-man rule until the beginning of the 1912 season. Just let it sink in for a second umpire in a major league baseball game or the caliber of that with um, by yourself (laughs) or even just with two men okay so from the standpoint of both the american and national league presidents and owners um um, augmentation of field staff to more than one umpire came slowly all right so in many ways having two umpires on the field in very simple terms involved money as we always know now, right? I mean, people will complain. It's not necessarily the best thing I always say. I mean, there are times and places to say it, but if somebody wants to complain about, you know, working two men and something, and they didn't think that somebody was quite where they're supposed to be, well, if you had it, 
you know, three man or four man crew out there, then you definitely would be uh, much better off and be able to be in position to make pretty much every call if you're working the system properly. You know, in the early days of umpiring with, you know, a lot of the umpires that I've mentioned and, and umpire spotlights, those are really the only like on the staff kind of umpires. Um, a lot of these umpires, especially the guys that would come in to work, you know, in a you know, two-man crew or work the bases or something like that, were just part-time guys, and it wasn't like a long-term kind of thing. It wasn't You didn't really make a career out of umpire. Most guys did not at the time. So, um, and, and frequently, too, if you were one of the more respected, better umpires, a Bill Clem or somebody like that, um, you worked the plate almost all the time. He probably worked the plate. 80% of the time in his games. And obviously, if you're working by yourself, you're working the plate. But uh, even when he would work with a partner, he'd always get the plate because they're like, well, he's really good at balls and strikes, so he gets the plate. <laughs> okay. Now, he got more games because of that. I'm sure some of you out there, I mean, we like working the plate, but if you had to work it, you know, you know, days and days and days in a row, that gets a little tough in, in your um, and your ability to be consistent might uh, go down a little bit because of that. But nonetheless, that's the way that they did it back in the time. So another uh, dead ball era umpire innovation um, is uh, ejections, all right, which is very standard nowadays. So while the um, American League's Van Johnson and his counterpart, uh, Harry Pullman, in the National League were attempting to build uh, umpires' authority and status, they, of course, ran into problems from players and managers and owners, right? So many of the problems came from players, and uh, owners were beginning to rein in the vulgar and um, you know unseemly behavior from the players. But umpires were still fair game uh, on the field during the games, right? So um, like Hall of Fame umpire um, Sam or Hall of Famer Sam Crawford, sorry, not umpire, um, baseball player for the Detroit Tigers, he said, we only had one umpire in a game, uh, not four, like they have today, and you knew that one umpire just can't see everything at once. He'd stand behind the catcher until a man got on base, and then he'd move out and call balls and strikes from behind the pitcher, so they would do this at that time. We'd run with one eye on the ball and the other on the umpires. So, you know... Players are tricky. They were tricky back then, and they're always looking for the advantage. And so you know some crazy stuff went down, right? So it would take almost a decade to remove the difficult players from causing problems with umpires, and managers uh, were another problem, all right? So Connie Mack had been ejected by Hank O'Day when Mack was a catcher, but he rarely you know, had problems with umpires as a manager of the Philadelphia Athletics. Uh, now, Orioles and Giants manager John McGraw was one of the toughest on umpires. He averaged several ejections a season back in the dead ball time. He claimed that artful kicking, that's what he would call it, to keep umpires aware of his presence, gained his club as many as 50 extra runs a season. Now, I don't know if he could really prove that, but that's what he believed. So that's why he, you know, went after people. So other dead ball era managers like uh, Frank Chance and Fielder Jones and others like them were also tough on managers uh, and their attitude toward um, umpires. Um, they were tough managers, that is. Um, Clark was flexible in his attitudes with umpires in 1908 when he decided that the best approach in a close race was to keep his players eligible and to leave umpires alone. Probably a good idea, right? 
Uh, Clark told Sporting Life, there's nothing to be gained by paying attention to the umpires, but it may mean a big loss when a, a when men get put out of the game, you know, ejected. So during the pennant race in 1908, the New York Giants led the league with 20 ejections. The Cubs had six, and uh, Clark's Pirates had only three, and they ended up um, doing quite well, but the Cubs ended up winning the pennant. So another, and kind of our final um, innovation from dead ball era umpires and the things that they did and fought for, uh, was how they dealt with team owners and the you know league officials. And of course, it was two leagues at the time, National League and American League. Um, the National League was known as more of a rough and tumble kind of league. Uh, when the American League was formed um, in 1901, Ben Johnson was was the guy that formed it, and you know the commissioner of that league and everything, or the president that is. And um, he did he wanted it to be a more family type atmosphere at the ball games, and he wanted um, the umpire abuse and other issues to be um, gone, or at least very minimal, all right? So he had um, more leverage to do that because he formed the league, and um, he thought that um, you know, abuse of umpires was like basically one of the worst things you could do, all right? Um, so he said repeatedly it was the number one crime an American, league, American leaguer could commit. So he required umpires to file reports of serious incidents that occurred during games. If an umpire lied to Johnson, he was done as an umpire in the league. This is always a thing to talk, you know, with your assigners and supervisors. You don't lie to them. Even if you did something wrong, you got to fess it up, okay? You can't do that. The league's um, first major league season in 1901 uh, was easily the worst in terms of umpire quality. Um, the staffs were mediocre, you know. They, you know, a lot of the good umpires were in the National League, so they had some issues. The next step, and the, um, you know, a lot of umpires uh, fought for, and uh, somebody like Ben Johnson was to adopt the two umpire system. So the World Series employed two umpires from each league, so they had four there. By 1908, many observers believed it was time for a change, and Johnson declared that uh, two umpires would officiate games in 1909 and thereafter. The National League finally adopted two umpires in 1912. So the Major Leagues began three umpires in 1933, and in 1952, the current four-man setup was established. All right, that's quite a while. You know, if you think about it, the first 50 years or so of Major League Baseball um, had less than four umpires on the field. All right, so umpires of the time were split over the use of the one man versus two men. Um, you know, just like anything, you know, it, if you think about it, if you're working, let's say, some postseason, and you got to work three or four man, which maybe you don't work very often, uh, and you're used to working two man, it'd almost be easier just to work two man. You know, like, um, for example, you know, when, when I worked state finals games and stuff here in, in Michigan, uh, we work four man. And so it's fun to work for a man and, and to learn the mechanics and make sure you do it right. But would it be easier if I was just working two men out there? Yeah, because that's like riding a bike, you know, you just kind of do it. So um, I'm sure there was some of that too. So same thing with uh, one man or two men. But eventually um, they decided that they're willing to pay more and that the quality of umpiring was definitely worth it. So they started to slowly increase the number of umpires on the field. You know, especially when you're working... Um, with this one guy, I mean, like Billy Evans said, you did a lot of running, and he said, let's face it, there was a lot of guessing. And 
if you know the dead ball era, one of the reasons they called that because there wasn't a lot of scoring. So one run usually made a big difference and somebody might win or lose because of it. I mean, you had a lot of like, you know, two to one, three to two kind of games. It wasn't like, you know, it was going to be, you know, uh, an eight to seven game and the one run, you know, everyone matters, of course. But um, if you could, uh, you know, get a few more runs or hit a home run or something, maybe it's not as big a deal. So anyway, the development of modern umpires comes down to three factors, uh, creating signals that allowed fans, players, coaches, and umpires to understand what occurred on the diamond, uh, giving greater authority over the game um, without fear of being unnecessarily overridden without cause, you know, with ejections and stuff, right? And finally, the advent of uh, more than one umpire on the field over time. And those are all things that the dead ball era umpires um, helped to innovate uh, during the early part of the 1900s. Hopefully you found that interesting. Um, you know, I, a history teacher, high school history teacher, and I always like history, as you might know. And I always add some of that into uh, the podcast. But uh, I find baseball history very interesting because it does reflect uh, the history of our country. So, you know, from time to time, I like to put that into the podcast. This week's umpire spotlight is current Major League umpire, Jerry Davis. Uh, For those of you that uh, remember, Jerry Davis broke into the Major Leagues in 1982. And uh, at that time, of course, he was a National League umpire, he was a National League umpire uh, until 1999, uh, and then in the 2000 season, Major League Baseball unified the umpires, and um, since that time, he's been a Major League umpire. He has uh, been a crew chief since 1999. He's worked in five World Series, nine League Championship Series, and 11 League Division Series. He's also worked in the All-Star Game four times, and um, throughout his career, if you are looking at a game and don't know who's who out there, he has worn uniform number 12. When the 2019 season started, uh, Jerry Davis was the second most senior umpire in the major leagues. That's second to, of course, Joe West. Um, But Davis has the longest uninterrupted tenure due to Joe West being forced to sit out two seasons, uh, 2000-2001, after the uh, failed mass resignation strategy that uh, former Major League Umpire Association uh, director Richie Phillips uh, you know, concocted in July 1999. So Davis, um, along with all the National League umpires at the time, they tenured their resignations, but uh, rescinded it, um, Davis rescinded it, and was not chosen as one of the 22 uh, Major League umpires to lose their jobs by Commissioner Bud Selig at the time and um, MLB Executive Vice President Sandy Alderson. So I guess in some ways he was kind of lucky. I think somebody like Joe West, you know, has had his high-profile issues some might say and so he was definitely one to to you know be on the chopping block at that time in 2019 
Davis's crew consisted of him, of course, as crew chief, and Greg Gibson, um, Brian Knight, and Pat Hoberg. So that's the crew you normally will see unless some of those guys are, are injured or on vacation, and then you would usually see a AAA call-up. Um, Jerry Davis began umpiring in the minor leagues in 1976. He worked in the Midwest League, which is the league around this area, and uh, our local minor league team is in that league. He worked in the Eastern League, and he worked in the American Association before he was promoted in 1982. He's officiated in 22 postseasons, including the World Series in 1996, 1999, 2004, 2009, and 2012. And then as far as league championship series, he's worked them in 1990, 92, umpiring appearances. He worked those games in 1989, 1997, 2002, and 2012. Um, He called balls and strikes in the All-Star game in 2002 and 2012. That's quite an honor. With such a long and illustrious career, um, Davis has had some notable games and moments that some of you might recall. Uh, You might recall in September 2014, he was uh, reprimanded by Major League Baseball for making a uh, crybaby faces at the Oakland Athletics players. You know, obviously they were whining about something in the game. I'm sure all of us have wanted to do that at some time or another. But nonetheless, uh, the league statement said that we expect our umpires to remain professional on the field at all times, which is probably a good thing that all of us should try to do. Other notable games, he was the second base umpire for Randy Johnson's perfect game that he pitched in May of 2004. Jerry Davis was also um, at Tropicana Field um, when instant replay overturned a call on the field for the first time ever in the major leagues. A fly ball was hit by Tampa Bay Rays first baseman Carlos Pena. The umpires ruled was there was interfered with by a fan sitting in the front row of the stands when the ball hit the hands of the fan and fell back into the field of play. And then after Joe Madden requested the umpires hold a conference to discuss the play, um, the umpires, headed by Jerry Davis, of course, decided to look at instant replay. And just over four minutes later, Davis returned to the field and signaled that the ball was a home run. So there you go. He was the um, other notable things. He was the home plate umpire for the last game played at Shea Stadium in September 2008. And with his assignment to the 2012 World Series, in which my Detroit Tigers lost again in the World Series, Davis set an official record for the most postseason games umpired in Major League history with 115. And since then, his mark has moved forward to 128 games and 
if he continues to umpire, I'm sure it will increase some more. Um, other things, uh, he, in 2014, Davis ejected Yankees starting pitcher Michael Pineda for having pine tar on his neck. You might recall that. That's a strange place to put some pine tar, but there you go. And then probably the most famous thing um, as far as umpiring concerning Davis was that he asked Texas Rangers third baseman uh, Adrian Beltre to move closer to the on-deck circle. And if you recall, and you can find video of this, uh, Beltre jokingly, um, he thought, uh, moved the on-deck batting circle, you know, closer, you know, moved it around, and Davis uh, ejected him, which, you know, some people gave, you know, Jerry Davis a hard time about that, but anybody that's umpired, if somebody did that in your game and was just trying to make a mockery of the situation, I'm sure that you would be very likely, I hope anyway, to eject them too. I thought it was a a legitimate ejection when somebody is acting that way. And from what I've heard, Beltre um, had, and he's retired now, uh, quite a reputation for being a screwball, and frequently he was, you know, very close, if not over the line. And this seemed like a situation where, okay, it's good to have some fun out there. You know, it's just a game and everything. I understand. But um, when you're making it more difficult on the people trying to run the show, uh, like the umpires are, uh, then that's where, you know, you get the heave-ho. Now, a lot of you um, probably know Jerry Davis from his um, sporting goods um, company, Jerry Davis Sports which he owns, of course. Uh, And it specializes in umpiring equipment and clothing. And um, a lot of people really like the products that are are put out through Jerry Davis Sports. He sells specially designed leg guards, among other things, which um, they give a small area at the the top for the hands to rest, um, which is consistent with uh, Jerry Davis's unique umpiring stance. And if you know, hopefully we get to see Jerry Davis work some plate games you know, sometime soon. But when he's um, working the plate, he bends down only about you know three quarters as far as as most guys would do, and he leans his back forward slightly and he grabs the top of his his shin guards uh, with his extended arms and kind of locks them in there. Um, and so these shin guards um, kind of. You know, the, our normal straps and stuff would be metal and different things like that. Anyway, they're kind of designed so that you can use that. I'm sure you could work the scissors with those on too if you wanted to, but uh, whatever you want to do. Um, but these are kind of designed that way. I, I've tried that. You know, it's good. Um, it's a good mechanic to, to do um, because you can get to the same, you know, locked in position. Same head height. Um, I think that works great for professional umpires and major league umpires because they don't get hit on the hands as often as amateur umpires like we do. Because, well, one, catchers are pretty much 99.9999% of the time going to catch any ball on the inside. Um, But, you know, if you're working high school ball and below, uh, sometimes, man, they just screw things up. I mean, even stuff above that. I mean, even if you're working collegiate ball, you know. So I, I, I don't like having my hands exposed there. Um, 
so I kind of got, have gone away from that. But I'm sure some of you out there might might use that. And if that is something you do, if you kind of work games in a Jerry Davis style stance, um, then you might want to look into the shin guards. Maybe that would be more comfortable for you and his other products out there. All right. So that is our umpire spotlight for this week. Jerry Davis. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. I hope you enjoyed the segments I had today. Uh, As usual, I plan on trying to push out one of these episodes every week. Uh, I can always find some content to... uh, to entertain you with and get you thinking about baseball and umpiring and hopefully sometime soon we'll all be on the field and experiencing certain things that will get us thinking even further. I know Major League Baseball is um, trying to plan a way to get back and play. Uh, From what I hear they're shooting for the first week of July. It's going to look very different if if it does happen. I think that either they're going to be playing in empty stadiums or they're going to be, you know, playing in southern locales or something like that. They're talking about having the designated hitter in um, both leagues, which, you know, I am a bit of a baseball peer, so I do like it. Uh, I like the, the, the chess match of a game that that has the pitcher hitting, but I get tired of watching pitchers hit. And, and since, you know, everything is about implementing, the, the leagues aren't really separate anymore. So you either need to have no designated hitter or, or a designated hitter. And the players association is not going to get rid of the designated hitter because, you know, a veteran player frequently, somebody, let's say like a Miguel Cabrera can extend his career and um, have that roster spot. And um, he's still a good hitter, and he never was that great in the field, but uh, he's less so now. So they're not going to give that up. So you might as well implement it in both leagues and have them uniform. Then you have it in the postseason all the time, and you have it particularly in the All-Star game because it's ridiculous to have pitchers hit in an All-Star game. And um, that's just probably the better way to go. That's just kind of the way it is. And people like to see the offense anyway. So we'll see if they're able to get back on track, Um, you know, they can do that with no fans and all the other things because a lot of people watch sporting events on television and that's their biggest draw anyway, whether it be baseball or other sports is the the television contracts that they have. For us that work amateur sports, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, I know technically big-time college football is amateur and things like that, and they have their big television contracts. But if there's not a big television contract, it's kind of hard to... um, um, you know, pay for everything that you need to pay for if you don't have a gate and you, you know, don't have, you know, you have all the travel expenses. I mean, most of the time, baseball in uh, smaller colleges and definitely in high schools and everything are just a money suck if you really want to think about it. I mean, think about like a, a JUCO school or a small D3 school or even D2 schools and stuff. Um, they just spend a lot of money um, to not make any money. And, and, and then they pay us to umpire those games. So you, you see like in Southern California, um, how they're not going to have face-to-face classes there. And so some of the sports there at some of the smaller uh, California schools, and some of them are smaller D1 schools as well, 
they're not going to have those in the fall. And um, to me, as a as an educator, um, if you don't have kids in the buildings, you know, whether it be a college or a high school, then you're not going to have the sports. How, how can you have that? It seems like that those kind of go hand in hand, unfortunately. I mean, I'd, I'd like it if they did, you know, learn at home kind of stuff or, you know, computer based learning, and then you can still have the sports. But if it's, you know, deemed not safe enough to be in a building, then how can it, how can you have athletic competitions? So that seems to be the way that it's going until those things change. Um, then we, um, we won't be having, you know, school sponsored type sports. The big thing is, can places survive that? Can schools survive that? Now, high schools are eventually going to have it back. Okay, so even if they cancel a season, they're going to have their baseball season at some point in the future. Um, you know, we got to cancel this year. Hopefully that doesn't happen next year. But even if it did, eventually, hopefully, it will all be safe enough and they'll have high school sports. But if you're a small-time college and um, they get rid of it, it might not come back, you know? I mean, there's, we've already seen some schools, you know, baseball programs that were a casualty of this. And uh, there's unfortunately going to be a few more of the smaller types of schools that um, just cut their baseball programs. So hopefully that doesn't happen too much. And um, even for those that it does happen to, hopefully at some point or another, they will regain their baseball programs and their other sports. They get cut from this. But uh, that is something to keep in mind. And those are uh, that affects us as umpires because that's less opportunities for people to work uh, games. They're also doing other changes. Like here, one of our smaller Division One conferences is the Mid-American Conference here um, in, in the Midwest. There are three schools in Michigan that are part of that, Eastern Michigan University, Central Michigan University, Western Michigan University. But there's other ones too, like University of Toledo. There are several you know, down in, in Ohio and Indiana and other areas around this part. They used to have a conference tournament every year like most D1 conferences did, but they have decided at least for 2021 and maybe 22, I can't remember, but you know, the next year or two to not have a conference baseball tournament. Um, instead, they will go from 24 to 30 conference games. So they'll play more conference games and then whoever wins, that's the champ. You know, all conference tournaments are way too make money, okay, because you have a locale and people come and they travel. Um, I don't think the Mid-American um, Conference made a lot of money on the baseball tournament, but like something like the Big Ten tournament, which would be on Big Ten Network and um, get, you know, some television, you know, revenue from that, that made a little bit of money on that. Just like you see with... Um, conference championship games in football and all the conference championships in basketball, those make money. Um, and, and the same thing goes down to baseball too. I mean, the reason that we have expanded playoffs because it makes more money for people. So, you know, if you play 162 game baseball season um, and you're the American or national league team and you have the best record, you, you are the best team. You have proven that. Okay. Now injuries, why players are playing do you win it against the other teams that are, are also probably pretty solid that you have to play in the playoffs I, I don't know we see that happen and frequently we get the upsets and of course you know as americans we like the upset we root for the underdogs so that's kind of fun that's what makes the ncaa you know, basketball tournament fun 
is that, you know, the underdogs win. If it was always the number one seeds riding through and making it to the Final Four, that'd be kind of boring. People wouldn't watch it all the time. They like to see that, you know, double-digit seed make it through or something like that. So, but we know that they're probably not the best team. They just happen to be playing really well at the time, and that still can be exciting. So all these things that we see right now, there are these big money makers. Some of them are going to be cut. And, um, and again, that's lost opportunities for officials in all sports uh, to make some money in advance and, and have some great memories of some things that they accomplished. It's going to be different. When we get back uh, to hopefully some kind of normalcy, it's not going to be the same normal as before. Um, but hopefully, slowly, we get back to something close to what it was before. Time will tell. Until then, everybody keep calling strikes.